Welcome to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Chuck Thorpe, Principal Research Scientist at Carnegie Mellon University, and Dr. Takeo Kanade, Director of the Robotics Institute at Carnegie Mellon University, discuss the economics of robotics, advances in technology, and roadblocks to innovation. They also expand on the many educational and entertainment purposes of robots. We hope you enjoy today's podcast, and don't forget to subscribe to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. So, Takeo, you're the director of the Robotics Institute. You've been working on building smart robots for a long time. What's the most difficult part about building an intelligent robot? Well, unfortunately, everything is difficult. That's, that's what I was afraid of. <laughs> Both afraid of and, and excited about, because that gives us an opportunity to try right. different things. Well, but we talk about robots needing to see, needing to think, and needing to act. Is there one of those which is easier or harder than the others? Well, you know, I've been working in the area of what we call computer vision, uh, the area to give the capabilities to see, to understand by visual input so, to the computer. So naturally, I would say seeing is the most difficult. And I think that's true. You know, you know I was told that... Uh, well, half of the brain is, in fact, dedicated to the function of seeing. Sure, we have this whole visual cortex. Well, and seeing is also hard to do research on. If you're doing research on thinking, you can ask people how they think. But when you're doing research on seeing, it's much harder to introspect and, and think about how you see. Exactly. So, In fact, uh, my rule of thumb is that when you think it is easy, it's difficult for a computer to do. If you think it's difficult, it's relatively easy for a computer to do. Well, sure, and seeing is something that we do so naturally that we don't even think about how hard it, it really might be. So when you say computer vision, are you talking about cameras? No, actually, camera as an input device today is, in fact, pretty good. You know, the resolution is very high, how many, how finely you can capture the light, intensive light uh, information. Uh, today's camera is very good. Speed, pretty good too. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, in some respect, they're better than our eyes. Uh, our eye can't see, uh, you know, infrared region, uh, ultraviolet region, but well, many, we can buy many cameras that can see those areas. But the most difficult part is how to make sense out of it. You know that. You know, you, you worked on a vision system to recognize the road, which is so obvious thing for us to do, but somehow not yet. Well, and, and that's one of the interesting things, that when we started in this business 20 years ago or longer ago, we really thought we were going to build a general purpose vision system that could see everything the way that people see it. And we haven't really done that. We've built this special purpose vision for seeing a road and driving a car, or special purpose vision for recognizing faces. Are we ever going to get back to that grand vision? We have to. I believe that we have to. Um, why not? I think we should be able to do that. Well, do you really think so? Or do you think it's maybe both? that we need to do some grand vision of building the seeing machine, but also build some very special purpose kinds of things. Well, special purpose 
machines will remain to be useful, or will continue, well, actually will become more useful, uh, especially because that, because of the reason that I just said, that is some of those special purpose vision systems are better than human reading characters. I mean, today, uh, machine uh, character recognition system can read several thousands of uh, words per minute, and much, much faster than uh, human. And it does all that with special purpose sensors and special purpose algorithms. So it's not really a general theory of vision at all. That's right. But it's a very good engineering approach. Right. And, and that's really where a lot of the progress in the field has been, in the, the very specific engineering approaches that's to individual right. things. Why, why I think, the, I think this, this is the difficulty of general versus specific, uh, special vision is very much related to what I think in artificial intelligence field, they call it frame problem. I was told that one of the most interesting uh, question about this uh, the quids. Uh, what's called the the river and uh, the, oh the missionaries and cannibals yeah probably. the one okay. you know is a yeah uh, I forgot uh, three uh, it's it's three good guys and three bad guys and you need to ferry everybody across to the other side and you have a canoe that only holds a certain number that's of right people. yeah when that so was asked well the simplest question is well that's easy go down uh, three miles from here, and then there will be a bridge, so cross together. <laughs> See, that's obviously a good answer. Yes. But that's not the answer that we want. Right. The same thing is true with uh, vision system. That is, to understand what aspect of understanding is being asked for the machine to do, and in this particular situation, oh, we can't do it because, oh, we forgot uh, to turn on the camera. Even that is not easy to actually, for the, ma to, for the machine to recognize, it's in right. a sense. It's, yeah. it's only in the last few years that we've had systems that have any kind of self-diagnosis. They're smart enough to say, well, no, I can't do that because I have a completely blank signal. Maybe you should turn on, turn on the camera. That's right. Well, I can't do that because it looks like it's raining and, and I'm not designed to work in the rain. So that's an important step in building practical systems as well as an important step in really understanding uh, the nature of perception. How much are you motivated by biological perception? Well, yes, both, I would say. I often say that biological systems should inspire us the computer vision scientists who, uh, especially computer vision scientists like us, like me, who are most interested in making it possible or making it even better than biological systems. For those, I would say that biological systems are good uh, metaphor or good example or inspire us. But I'm not I'm a little bit different from typical people who the typical answer is say, well, yes, uh, we should follow what biological systems do. I, my sense is that, yes, biological systems are good uh, performer, and in fact, at this moment, I'm probably the best, 
but I don't believe they are the optimal machines. I don't believe that, truly. So, so if you really want to push on biological analogs to perception, there's a lot that's known about the, the visual pathways, about color opponent theory, about different sizes of smoothing and edge detection. So you could really go that route, or you could take a more general inspiration and say that neural nets are the right way to do things. So, so what do you think about neural nets? Well, neural net is the, uh, to me, it's a computational device. I don't think it is solving the problem. It's computational device. And it's an extremely good device that somehow accommodate lots of nonlinear uh, aspect of the computation together with a very clever and actually very simple, almost trivial sense of learning capabilities. So as a, as a mechanism, as a, as a computational machine, it's a great machine. But can it actually, is it solving the problem? I don't think so. I think that what is solving the problem is the information structure that is built on it. And what, whether or what should be uh, implemented on it is our designers' uh, credibility. I mean, the creativity and designers' you know, discovery. So, so one good slice at it, our colleague Dean Pomerlo talks about neural nets as a function approximator. And they're very good at approximating the function, but you have to figure out what is this function that you want them exactly, to approximate. Exactly, exactly. You, as the, the designer of the system, have to know what the inputs are and what the outputs are, and have some sense whether the problem in between is, is solvable. That's right. And then you can turn the neural net loose just like you would turn loose uh, any other function approximator or machine learning system. Right. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Dean Pomelo's. Uh, Vision system, as, you, as, you, as both of us know, that it's it's neural net original one, the neural net based system that learns and recognize uh, the road. Okay, but as you know, one of the success, I think, one of the re biggest reasons of the success is what to be given in what order as a learning example. And also, more, one of the very interesting is, what is the right output? What is the right form of the output? Is it just, yes, here's a road, no, here's the road? Is that the representation? Is that the output that you want the machine to give? Or other things, such as the general direction? So what was cool about Dean's system, you would drive a car, and the video camera would be watching, here's what the road looks like, and here's how the person was steering. And after a few minutes, regardless of what the road looked like, it could learn if the road looks like this, I should steer this way. If it looks like this, I should steer this way. So that was learning from, from a fairly general function of the road. But it didn't really take into account anything that Dean knew in advance about the structure of the road. So his, his more recent system, which is really designed for highways and not gravel roads and dirt roads, takes a lot more account of the, the knowledge that Dean has of the structure of the road. So he's not learning as general a thing. He's learning something much uh, more well-specified about what the road should be. That's right. Also, from purely economy economical point of view, that's better to me. 
because we know the structure of the road. Why should the machine or need the machine to learn that from the very beginning? Yeah, the economical argument doesn't, doesn't motivate me as much because of the advances that are always happening in computer technology. What motivates me more is that if you know what the road is going to look like, then you can tell the computer, here's the important parts and here are the distractions. So you don't accidentally decide to track a guardrail or something. You're really looking at the road and focusing your attention. Mm. So you don't think the economy works here? I think it does. The reason is that if we accumulate this much knowledge of the world, what it should be like, what it should, how it should look, and even mathematical form of the, the behavior of of the object and so on. Well, if we can somehow put into the computer once, then you know you don't need to our physical machine, the the computerized machines don't each of them don't need to doesn't need to learn from the scratch. Whereas we human apparently, I think each of us is learning, learning independently. Yeah. The, the reason that economics doesn't really motivate me too much is that if you wait four years or six years or a decade, the economics of the computer industry change so much so that it's cheaper in the long run to let an inefficient program eventually learn something mm. rather than spend expensive graduate student time in trying to explicitly program it. Mm. I have a little bit different idea here. Well, your idea is cheap graduate students <laughs> instead of expensive graduates. Well, uh, no, not, not just that, like that. I guess that your experience is limited. However, you know, inquisitive you are and however uh, sort of acute alert you are in absorbing the information from the outside, outside world. But that, that's still limited. And my experience is limited. But if we have a machine that accumulate my experience on top of yours and keep doing that, I mean, isn't that a more efficient way for us to go? Yes. The, the question I was getting at is, are we accumulating experience or are we accumulating insight? Mm. And if the computers can somehow automatically accumulate the experience without you and me having to tell them. If you had a system that watched you drive all the time and figured out, oh, on all of the roads that Takeo drives, here's what the road looks like. That would be much better than you having to tell it, oh, I'm going to drive on this road and it has a line painted on the side, and I'm going to drive on that road and it doesn't have a line painted on the side. Even though you could tell it that pretty easily, there's still no reason to waste your time doing that if the computer can automatically learn that. That's the angle I was Okay, all right. Let's, let's try a different angle about, about the economics. Uh, if you look at, for instance, our NavLab mobile robots, over the last 10 years, they've gone from sort of three miles an hour to 90 miles an hour. People ask me all the time, is that just because computers have gotten cheaper? So what do you think? Are we making progress just because electronics no, is getting better? That's not true. I think the, the fundamental understanding to me, of how to manipulate, how to make sense out of visual input 
in terms of labeling things. That, in other words, I mean, to picture is nothing but um, projection, three dimensional. I mean, mathematically speaking, it's a projection of three dimensional world, which is very complicated, to a collection of what we call pixels. You know, as you know, uh -huh. it's a two dimensional representation. So it 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 lost the three-dimensional structure. So it's not easy to make sense out of it, even though somehow human seems to be able to do it without even thinking. Now, this, how to do that, I think we are accumulating. I think we are getting much better understanding how to do it. And one of the examples of that, I mean, again, very specific example here is this relationship between the, the road plane, three-dimensional, which is extending near to far with three-dimensional things, which we call obstacle, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. projected onto a two-dimensional observation space, which we call images, and say, okay, where is the obstacle? How far, how fast are we moving on this plane through this visual input? I mean, Doing this is not a trivial thing. You cannot just do by uh, writing the computer codes without knowing how to do. And we are yeah. gaining knowledge of how to do it. And then that's well, the reason why I think we're getting better. And that's one of the things you pointed out to me long ago, is that you don't just hire computer programmers. You hire physicists and you hire engineers because they understand the, the basic underlying phenomena that you're trying to model. That's right. See, I think my answer would be a little bit different than yours, that uh, yes, we have certainly gained more understanding, but we've also really learned how to take advantage of the higher speed computing. Mm -hmm. There are certainly things like motion interpretation, that if you have a, a good enough camera and good enough digitizer so that you can see the scene much better, and if you have high enough speed processing that you can process every image instead of 20 years ago, you could only process every hundredth image, that the, the whole job becomes a lot easier. So to a certain extent, we have to give credit to the electronics people. But there's also uh, cleverness in figuring out how to use that electronics. And there's also the, the deep theoretical understanding mm -hmm. A little bit of both. Oh, sure. Yeah. I, I think you, you hit the right point about this, the relationship of between the computational power and uh, the reliability, the robustness of the program. And I, I think the good example, I think the way that I would uh, explain usually is, is the following. Just as you said, uh, if we can take pictures twice as fast as, take and process pictures as twice as fast as before, then that means the apparent motion of the visual phenomena, apparent move of the visual phenomena on the image is half of the, the previous case, which means that in terms of area that you have to work up, uh, worry about, is one-fourth, one-quarter. So surprisingly enough, even though you have to process twice as much as pixels, but the variability 
that you have to expect is only one because of the two-dimensional aspect of vision it's one fourth so actually it's now the problem is has become may have become easier yeah and because of that the the method that we use um, is can be more fundamentally correct method rather than using tricks heuristics assumptions and I don't know whether the, the word is appropriate or not but I, I often say as you I don't know whether you recall it I usually call it kiss approach to computer vision keep it simple stupid the the simpler the method is actually it works better and that's very natural well and a lot of the mathematics of linearizing the motion and of of small changes as an object rotates it works if you have small motion and it doesn't work at all if you have large motion exactly so so that's an example where the you can write the correct mathematics if you have the electronics to go along with it to do the processing that's right let's talk about some applications we've talked a lot about uh, camera vision but you used some other kinds of sensors for doing some other kinds of applications first of all let's just start with cameras uh, people have two eyes you've used a lot more than two cameras in some of your applications right well I we the, the group my group has developed what we call multi baseline stereo the basic the premises premises is the following we should, we should back up and say stereo okay stereo meaning depth perception from uh, well like us use say the basic form is like us use two eyes and use the fact that uh, by observing the same point from two different point to viewpoint uh, you can actually well, triangulate to measure the distance exactly what is what is being done uh, by civil engineer using the tran uh, what do you call it, transit 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 or theodolite yeah sure and for people with we have a fairly narrow baseline and so our depth perception just from binocular vision is only good out to oh 15 feet something like that that's right beyond that we have to use other that's cues. right so because of uh, this is actually a good example of uh, the biological uh, inspiration versus mathematical pure mechanical um, uh, approach mm -hmm. and mine is actually mathematical or pure mechanical approach in the past people say okay well we human have two eyes therefore the stereo must be based on two cameras now unfortunately that metaphor is not perfect the reason is that we have other mechanisms such as focus, uh, convergence, the angle of the eyes to measure the distance. But if you just use the two cameras, then you're relying on the, the this mechanism called disparity. That is, the, the position of the same point uh, is projected on the different position, different point in the in the image by in the left eye and the right eye. Well, and you can, in order to tell how well people can do with just that cue. That's why there are things like the random dot stereograms. Right. 
so that you don't have any focus cue and you don't have any object shape cue and you don't have any uh, of those kinds of cues. And you can measure pretty accurately how well people do with just That's that right. cue. Which is pretty poor. Which is pretty poor. Right. So, and the other uh, the point that I'd like to make is that if you have two eyes or two cameras horizontally, then you need actually features in the space which are aligned vertically in order for us to be able to measure the distance. This is a little salty here, but well, if you take it as granted. If that's the case, then I can prove that for us human or human-like two-eye system, which where uh, two cameras are displaced horizontally, you have a hard time in measuring the distance to horizontal uh, lines. And you can actually test that if you want. I've, I've done that with some of my undergraduate classes. I've had them stand inside the classroom and get two volunteers outside the door to hold the string horizontal. And if that's all you can see is the string, you can't see the two people because they're blocked outside of the door. They can move that string back and forth and it's very hard to do stereo and to tell how far exactly. away the string is. Exactly. But if you turn the string vertically, or if some clever student understands he can turn his head sideways, now he can triangulate on the string exactly. to tell how far away it is. Yeah. So that thinking actually uh, gave us an idea of using more cameras. And the more the merrier. merrier. Uh, yes. So we, we developed a multi-camera stereo system which can compute the distance measurement for each point, not, not, not just one point, but everywhere in the pixel, the distance from camera. So now for this camera, or you can call it new camera system, which, uh, com which uses, say, ours actually is five, um, in conjunction with the computer output, not only a picture, which is collection of color information per pixel, but also the distance to each pixel from the camera. So you have basically four measurements per pixel, red, blue, green component, and distance component. In this sense, and then the, the, the well, beauty of yes. this is you can compute this every frame, 30 frames per second, or even faster if you have a faster and, computer. And since you have the distance and you know the angle of that pixel, now you have an X, Y, Z position as well as a red, green, blue position. That's right. So you can put it into your graphics engine and you can rotate this object and look at it from different sides and so forth. Right. So that's your three or five camera system. And, and I've used similar ideas, only taking the cameras and sliding them a lot further apart so that my depth perception can, can see out a lot further. And I use that for things like looking for obstacles on the roadway. Right. But you've also used this with, what, 56 cameras? No, 51. 51 cameras. Yeah, but okay. since you asked, let me explain my the ambition of digitizing the 3D world into the computer. Dynamic event. The camera, today's camera, can digitize 3D or events into a collection of 2D pictures. But my ambition is to actually digitize the three-dimensional world as is into the computer as a three-dimensional form. And for doing that, what we have done is 
So, uh, so most of when we talk about stereo processing, it's not really 3D, it's sort of two and a half D. That's right. You're generating a, a bar relief from one particular viewpoint, but you're not generating it from all the viewpoints. That's, so right. that's exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. I think you said the right right thing. The the distance measurement of this object from you is just shape of this from you. From me, it's the shape is like this. From this side, the shape is like this, and so on. So what we really want to do is to measure this as a whole into the computer, not, not just one view, not mm -hmm. just several views, but as a whole, or as we may call it 3, 3D digitization as, um, as an entirety, maybe you can call it okay. that way. Okay. And that's the ambition. And for that purpose, uh, we built a dome that has multiple uh, cameras. At this moment, we put 51 to look inside. And anything that happens inside, the, the whole 3D things, 3D, the, the situation is, is brought, is uh, digitized into the computer. Viewed from all sides at That's the same right. time. That's right. So once this is done, then the beauty of this is then I can create a new view from any arbitrary point and angle for the scene saying, okay, well, I don't, I had the original views here, but I didn't have a camera here. Okay, if you were here, what picture will you see? And I can compute that because I know there's three things, 3D things as an entirety. So, so not only in between the cameras on the dome, but you can also move inside That's or right. outside. outside. Exactly. Now, you really should have had this done and commercialized last night. Yeah. Because the Bulls won their sixth championship, and this was maybe Michael Jordan's last professional <laughs> basketball That's shot right. to win the basketball exactly. game. Exactly. And the only views available are from outside of the arena. If you had had the view of the defender inside watching the shot go over his head, that would pay for your entire research project right That's there. right. Yes. Uh, we... Yeah, you're right. We nicknamed this project, Let's Watch NBA on the Court. So the NBA court is covered by hundreds of cameras, and we do what we just said, and then give you the view from anywhere, from inside the court. So you can watch the, the game uh, by, while sitting inside the court, and you see Michael Jordan and Pippen passing through you and so on. Or uh, if you have a big enough living room, then uh, have head mount display and run with them and see if you can beat them. Or see the game from ball's eye point of view. What it's like if you see basketball game as a ball. That would be fun. That would be great to be part of the lob and watch somebody catch you and, and slam dunk. That's right. So, so that, that's maybe the application that would eventually pay for this. But I've heard you talk about other applications like uh, telesurgery, or if not surgery, because that involves manipulation, at least remote diagnosis. Give a physician someplace a virtual reality headset, have the patient in a room that has these cameras all around, and then the physician can look at the patient from different angles. And because it's all happening in real time, you can ask the patient to raise their arm and look and 
and view things from different sides right. in real time. Yeah. Well, okay, we've talked a lot about cameras, one camera and two cameras and 51 yeah. cameras. But before we go oh, to the, sure. the, can I say one more thing? I think one of the important, two important uh, applications of this idea of 3D camera time. One is, as you said, the, of course, the entertainment. The other one is education. I think it's really important for, um, for us to give arbitrarily view for the sake, for the purpose of education. Uh, even the thing that to educating or teaching uh, uh, how to do, that involves some skill. My good example is the following. How to uh, uh, tie, uh, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. the necktie. Mm -hmm. When your father explains you how to do this and you watch from this side, from your side, it's very hard to remember. That's why usually your father actually goes back to you and then explains from this way. Well, my dad explains it from behind partly because this is a skill that we've learned to do this way, and trying to turn around and do it in front is very difficult. That's right. That's right. And it's also hard for me to learn just watching him. That's right. Yeah. So, like that, the you can imagine the various things how to how to do things. You know, I mean, can be captured. The good instructors, the instructions can be captured by this mechanism, and you as a as a as a trainer trainee. Can actually observe it from many angles, and then that should be good, 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 uh, good one. Um, and then the last one is the well, somewhat related to the NBA thing. That is, I usually called, you know, third or fourth uh, theater art. The the first one is TV, where your view is limited by and constrained by the director. What you see is selected by him, so there's no way for you to choose. The second one is like uh, you go to a theater. Now you can choose your seat, but you're not allowed to change. Okay. Maybe you can stand up and change a little bit, but that's okay. Of course, the, the view that you have and the view that of the, of the audience who is the, the spectator who is the other part of the, the theater, they, you, those two are different, but you're not changing dynamically. Yes. The third one, maybe you can participate in it or see you can move around. Okay. Uh, some big theater, uh, the, the play, the theatrical art that you know the audience can actually see from many angles as you move. Uh -huh. But the fourth one that I think we're, we can think of is that you as an uh, audience can participate without destroying, without affecting the play. Well, and you've really added a dimension of time. Since you have all of this captured, you can rewind it and and play it again from a different viewpoint. That's right. Exactly. So I'm actually propose. I would like to propose that the all of the historical meetings, summit meetings, are actually captured by this multi-camera system, and. 35 years, or I forgot the number of years, but 35 years later, when it's declassified, we can actually, in fact, put ourselves at the negotiation table and see what Kennedy said, in what way, with what 
you know, facial expression. I think that will teach a lot. If we can see if Forrest Gump really was there. <laughs> That's right. Or if he wasn't, it'd make it easier to insert exactly. him if we wanted to do that. Okay. So, so that's a good segue into what I was going to ask about next. Stereo is one way of getting 3D, but I know you've worked with laser scanners for getting 3D, and that has some advantages in being able to look all the way around you at one point. And you've worked with a bunch of sensors in biomedical sensing. There's been some work done here on synthetic aperture radar, which mm -hmm. is a much different kind of a sensor. You've worked a little bit with uh, digitized videotapes. What what other sensors am I missing? Did you do some infrared processing? Yeah. Okay. Well, and the other it, interesting thing is this uh, the futuristic, uh, somewhat crazy idea is the the CT room. I have some <laughs> interest in that. You know, the CT, as you know, uh, computer tomography can uh, that that uses. X-ray, uh -huh. so you, you send X-ray this way, and then here's the middle of the object, and you see receive the you know transmitted light, and of course this doesn't tell what is inside, but if you do this enough number of combinations, then you can use mathematical theory to recover what's inside, and that is now done by for uh, medical purpose. In other words, this thing is the body basically. Or uh, industrial purpose, that is, some object uh, whose in internal structure uh, you want to inspect, whether there's a defect or a crack and things like that. Now, you can actually think of this as a room and digitize the whole situation. Maybe that's too, a little too crazy idea. I don't know if uh, that can has any viable application. But it'd be, well, it'd be great to have a cat walking through the room and be generating uh, x-rays from multiple viewpoints simultaneously so you could really reconstruct how the bone structure that's of the right. cat moves. Sure. You oh, can that's do an that. interesting application. Maybe oh, I yeah. should propose that. Oh yeah, and, and I'll volunteer my cat. <laughs> well, uh, we have to make it safe enough. Let's, let's change directions again. I was thinking about how much robotics has changed the world and it certainly has in manufacturing, and it's starting to change the world in robots operating in hazardous environments. But it really hasn't changed the way you and I live. Um, I got up this morning without any robots. Uh, the most intelligent thing I interacted with this morning was my alarm clock. When are robots or, or computer vision technology really going to come into our lives? I would say surprisingly very soon. To do what? To for us to begin to see a vision and the next wheel moving, the robot that moves around you as a part of your life. And I have a firm belief that the next century, 21st century, you will actually see lots of robots around you. You know, so far the robots were only seen either in the factory, or in the in fantasy movie, but not real life, everyday life. But I think it, soon, I think we'll begin to see those robots. In other words, robots will be closer to us 
in the next century, where number one, uh, very I think individual, uh, I mean helpers in your home. Okay. I think that's that is absolutely possible, and I'm I'm hundred percent confident that it will, that will happen. See, I have a little different view that the home is one of the most difficult environments for a robot to work in. Uh, if you think about working in a factory, you've got nice hard objects of known shape that, that you can pick up and manipulate and set down. If you think about a robot that has to deal with clothes, I'd love to have a robot do the ironing, but dealing with floppy fabrics and walking around a, a cluttered house is much more difficult than, than moving around in a factory. It is. It is. So the kind of task that it will do first will be very much limited. And I think you, I like your metaphor of alarm clock as a robot. I think it is. It is. It is. A, alarm clock is a, is, a, is a primitive form of a robot. It has a sense. That is, it, it's connected with time, and it does an assumption action generate noise. Now you can think of a lot more. And already it's coming. For example, intelligent rooms. That okay. senses your where you are and how many people are in the room. And by that it actually controls the temperature. It controls the airflow. It's the simplest form of robot if you want to call it. So if we talk about an intelligent robot having to do some sensing and some thinking and some acting. The intelligent room is a little smarter than a thermostat. Has a little bit better sensing, a little more thinking, and a little bit smarter acting. It still isn't all that smart, but but you're right. That's moving the right direction, and I think you're also right that maybe the first household robots won't look at all like robots. They'll look much more like intelligent rooms or something. Yeah, like that. that's right. And uh, I don't know how big the market is, but definitely the entertainment. Uh, robots as an entertainer. That's reasonable scenario. And as you know, uh, Sony has uh, beautiful small robots, which small dog robots, which are yeah. cute. Yeah. You know, you like it. Yeah. They they behave. They uh, their behavior is very simple, but somehow you feel attachment. It's much more than the traditional toys. Well, and we've seen at conferences a robot doll that uh, when you pick it up and touch it, it curls around you. So very simple things like that that don't take very sophisticated sensing or very sophisticated thinking are still very compelling and are a big jump up from, from just a, a passive toy. That's right. Now, now, there's some other robots starting to work. Just in the last couple of weeks, we have a robot museum guide mm -hmm. uh, that's capable of going around and, and not running into people and knowing where it is and giving tours. So that sounds like an, an easy way to kind of ease into the business of robots mm -hmm. out there in the public and being friendly and making people not afraid of it um, and being an attraction that draws people to the museums. Right. Now you once said the mailman robot. How about that? Well, you know, when we start dealing with, with robots driving around outdoors, there are some jobs that you can do at slow speeds and at night, like street sweepers, like uh, if not delivering the mail, maybe helping a, a mail carrier deliver the mail. Mm. You could imagine a rural mail carrier sitting there in the vehicle, but spending 
most of his or her time sorting and getting the mail bundled to go into the next mailbox, just being there as a safety driver. So the robot can do the driving until it really gets into to a situation where it's, un, it's concerned about something, something looks unfamiliar, then it can stop and ask for help. But free up the mail carrier from the, the uh, routine and boring jobs of doing the driving. So that's one way. Yeah. I think there's also a big possibility in some of the driver safety kinds of things. Uh -huh. A vision system that watches the road, and if you start to get sleepy and drift off the road, warns you and wakes you up. Those kinds of things could happen pretty quickly. Mm. Again, you're not asking the robot to do everything. You're asking the robot to help you do a uh -huh. better job of what you're up to. But you've been working on things like uh, computer vision for video skimming. That's the kind of thing I'd like to have, so I could tell it to watch all of the cable channels and only give me the, the interesting bits. So it's everything that you see in a search engine, but it really takes all of the computer vision kinds right. of things you're working right. on. Or a summary, too. Or a summary. So you say, I want to watch the baseball game, uh, but I don't have uh, or, or enough time, or you have to attend the meeting. And so when you come back, give me a summary. But my summary has to have all the scoring scenes, and I like so-and-so, so please don't forget whenever he is at the, uh, the, the, at, at the batting you know, position. Whenever like Mark that. McGuire is at bat, show me That's all right. the pitches. Otherwise, only show me the home runs. Right. Yeah. And those are, you know, coming, and I think uh, that's that's interesting. And in fact, uh, well, that that's what we, in the started of conversation. That is, the vision, which used to be computer vision, somehow had a distance from everyday life. But I think I think that with this extremely fast movement in making all the cameras so cheap, so small and so everywhere that I think that I wouldn't be surprised in two to three years from now that all of most, many of the uh, electronic gadgets that you have, of course, you can, uh, the laptop, every laptop will have soon the video and then they'll begin they, to use. All, every laptop now has a microphone. Right. It won't be very hard to have every laptop That's have right. a camera. You can buy the little cameras now in bulk for something like 10 bucks a piece. So there's no reason not to have them everywhere. Actually, the only reason not to have them everywhere is because we haven't figured out what to do with them yet. Yeah. That's and that's right. where your work and my work comes Yeah. In. So, Jack, how about uh, you give the score of uh, what we have done? What, what we I, as a vision and robotics researchers. What I think we've done in the field of computer science is to have computers shrink and disappear and pop up as a small part of lots of different things. I think as robotics researchers, we're not quite there yet. Our robots still mostly look like robots. Mm. Our cameras still mostly look like cameras. We're about to do the same thing. We're about to have the disappearing robot where the sensors will disappear and the computers will disappear and we'll have smart cars and smart rooms and smart laptop computers and smart television sets and so forth. Now, 
actually, we've got all of these smart things coming, but at home I'm still pretty low tech myself. <laughs> that I don't use a lot of this, but my kids do. So I think the score is really going to be set by the next generation. Uh -huh. People who really like to interact with all these cute electronic gadgets. I see. Well, I still like to participate in development all of these. So, so I do. You do? Sure. I think what we need is people like you and me who know how to build it. But we also need people with the imagination to tell uh -huh. us what the best thing is exactly. to build. Right. So I like to go and talk to kids and find out what they'd like to have use that as one of the inputs to try to imagine great things that we can do. That's good. So are you still having fun? I think so. And I, it's fun to do it, and it's fun to sit here and have this opportunity to chat. Well, thank you very much. Want more episodes like this? Don't forget to subscribe and get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast.